Have any of you fellows been shopping with your wife lately? I have in mind, especially, maybe going out to shop for a new dress. I, I, I suspect that if we took a poll of all the husbands here who have been out shopping for a new dress with their wives, you would agree with me that that's near pure agony. <laughs> it's just near pure agony. Because they're never satisfied, you know. You get a dress and they, and they you go to the dressing room and they try it on. They come out and say, how's that look? Oh, that looks really nice. I like I don't like the big of it. I mean, you go through just a whole rack of dresses and none of them suits them. And they all look fine, of course, but none of them suits them, you know. And they, and they want something different and more of this and less of that. And, oh, man, I mean, I'm tired even thinking about it, right? Well, I want to suggest to you that that is the way that some people approach their religion. They approach religion that way. It's like shopping. It's, it's like a woman shopping for a new dress. It, what, what do I like and uh, what do I not like and what would please me more, what would I like less of when it comes to religion? Frequently that idea of shopping is expressed when people say something like this, I am looking for a church that, and then they go on to describe what they're looking for in a church. It's sort of the idea of shopping. This is what I would like. Well, of course, uh, we want to examine that notion this morning, and we'll be finding out that what people are looking for is often not what God wants when it comes to religion. What am I looking for in a church? That'll be our topic for discussion this morning. Thanks for being here. As has been pointed out several times already, what a glorious day we have in Middle Tennessee. Beautiful weather and a great privilege to be together with fellow saints and, and those who are seeking to know more about God and to serve Him faithfully. We're glad you're here. and We thank you for participating in this this morning. For those of you who are visiting with us, thanks for coming our way. Please come again every time that you have a chance to be here. Ask any questions you might have also, by the way. What about this idea, it's what I'm looking for in a church? Before we even begin uh, to investigate what people are sometimes looking for, I want to suggest to you that there's really a problem with that idea per se. It's what I'm looking for in a church. It's all about me. It's, it's what I like and what I don't like. Um, how am I being served? What's being done for me? What kind of programs that you've got that I can benefit from and so forth? All of that is just so contrary to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Do you see that? Do you see what Paul was saying there? It's not about me, it's about God. This, this business of serving God is not like shopping. It's not like trying to pick out something that I like. Paul said, I'm not trying to satisfy myself, I'm trying to please God. You know, the idea of seeking something that I like, sort of the analogy of shopping for something, that's never uh, used in the Scriptures to describe our approach to worship. Uh, That sort of descriptive is never used, but I tell you what is used. Descriptives are used like a servant and a master, or like a soldier in an army. Now, you think about that. You think about a servant and his master. And, of course, the word that applies more for us would be the idea of a slave and his master. We're, we're the slaves. The Lord is our master. Now, he's a loving master, but we're still his servants. You know, a servant wouldn't say to his master, you know, I, I just don't like that, that, that instruction you gave me. I, I, that, that, that doesn't suit me. I don't believe I want to do that. 
A slave couldn't say that to his master, could he? Or a soldier in the army. He's instructed to, to fulfill a command and he says to his superior officer, I'm sorry, but that just doesn't suit me at all. I don't want to do that. I don't like that part. You know, A soldier in an army could never say that, right? You begin to get the idea? This whole notion of what I'm looking for in a church is just based on a wrong premise. That, it, that, that I should be seeking something that pleases me. No, I should be seeking something that pleases God. That's what religion is about. What do these people sometimes say? I'm looking for a church that, for instance, isn't so dogmatic. I'd like a church that isn't so dogmatic. Do you understand the word dogmatic? To be dogmatic simply means to hold a strongly held belief. Uh, to be forcefully, uh, hold a position that you forcefully express. To have the idea that you're not going to change is the notion of being dogmatic. Years ago, I talked to a woman and uh, was trying to encourage her for Bible study and so forth. She had visited our services, but she didn't come back. And, and when I called on her, uh, she expressed the fact that she felt we were probably much too dogmatic for her. She said, and this was a direct quote, she said, I'm only dogmatic about one thing, and that's about not being dogmatic. That's what she said. Well... What she was saying, really, and what these people who say, I'm looking for a church that isn't so dogmatic, what they're saying, really, is an attack on the notion that we should take a strong doctrinal stance about anything. They don't want that. They, they really are against the idea of book, chapter, and verse preaching. They don't want a thus saith the Lord sort of approach to religion. They are not satisfied with the idea that I think is very biblical when it when we, we express the idea the Bible says it, that settles it. They don't like that. They don't want it to be that way. Now understand, these kind of people hold strong opinions. They're dogmatic in their opinions about lots of things. For instance, if you were to talk to some of these same people about, about politics, well, they'd have some really strongly held views. They'd be dogmatic about their politics. Or if you were to talk about sports, uh, they're very adamant about their likes and dislikes in the, in the realm of sports. But for some reason, that dogmatic approach is just not allowed. In their thinking, it's just not allowed in religion. But of course, uh, that misses the clear truth that God so often expresses, and that is that doctrine is very important. That dogmatic stance on doctrinal issues is absolutely necessary. In Second John, beginning verse 9, Whoso transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your, your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Do you see that? Isn't that pretty straightforward? In fact, it, it specifically says, you don't have the doctrine right, you don't have God. I don't know how he could make it any plainer than that. Notice what the Apostle Paul said. This was his approach in preaching the gospel. Paul said in Acts 20, verse 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. I'll tell you, most preachers these days could not make that claim, could they? Because they're not preaching the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God. They're shying away. In fact, they are admittedly shying away from certain doctrinal things that they, they think people don't want to hear. Uh, and, and so they couldn't, they couldn't claim, as Paul does, that they're preaching the whole counsel of God. 
in the text that Thomas read for us a few moments ago from 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Remember, of course, he's talking to Timothy, who was an evangelist, and he says, this is what you should do. I charge thee, therefore, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come that they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Notice in this passage that Paul was aware that men would not want to hear sound doctrine. And, and, and that they would like to hear rather things that were pleasing. Notice he says they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Notice people who will tickle their ears. People who will tell them the things they like here. People who will not stress doctrinal issues that might force them to change People won't like to hear that. It's almost like Paul was predicting conditions in our world today, isn't it? Because that's very much the situation we see. And we see people rushing to churches where they will not be challenged with doctrines that contradict what they already believe and what they want to do. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul said, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's so clear, isn't it? And so someone said, I just don't think you should be so dogmatic. Uh, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty dogmatic statement to me. If they preach any other gospel than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. We have this warning in Revelation 22, beginning verse 18. Revelation 22, verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. I think he was talking specifically about the book of Revelation but I think the principle applies to all of God's inspired word. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. How does that statement compare to the idea of people today? I don't want a church that's too dogmatic. I want to be able to pick and choose the things that I like religiously. That doesn't, that doesn't fit, does it? It just doesn't fit. And so those people who say, what I'm really looking for is I'm looking for a church that isn't so dogmatic. You'd have to agree that they're looking for a church not like the one God wants. God wants us to be dogmatic. He wants us to take strongly held doctrinal views based upon the inspired truth of the Scriptures. Someone says, well, what I'm looking for really is I'm looking for a church that's not so judgmental. There's a polling group called the Barna Group. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that. If you, you probably have seen it a number of times in our bulletin when we cite stats in our bulletin. Very often they come from the Barna Group. I read a Barna Group poll just this week. And it talks about young people leaving the church that they were brought up in. Uh, almost 60% of young people leave the church that they grew up in, at least temporarily, if not permanently. Three-fifths, three out of every five young person leaves the church they were brought up in. The, the poll was, why? Why are these young people leaving the church? Did you know that of those who leave the church, one out of four cite the church is too judgmental? All right? So this is a big issue with people. And so it's, it's, a, it's a major crime in the eyes of a lot of people if the church is perceived as being judgmental at all. Don't be judgmental. I'm looking for a church that is not so judgmental. 
And of course, the verse they're going to cite is Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. That's, that's got to be one of the best-known expressions in the whole Bible because it's most frequently used by people who are taking this point of view. I just don't think you can judge me. I, want, I do not want to be judged. I don't want the church to be judgmental. Uh, of course, the problem is that they're ignoring the very context in which that statement is made, which we have studied many times before. In Matthew chapter 7, that goes on to describe, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. What, as we've explained so many times before, that judge not of verse 1 is described, the kind of judging that is forbidden is described in these verses. It's, it's this hypercritical and hypocritical judgment. I want to correct you about every flaw, and I'm not addressing my own issues. I want to get the speck out of your eyes while i got a board sticking out of my eye. That's what Jesus was condemning when he said, judge not. Don't judge that way. But in the very context, he, he says, you get that beam out of your own eye. What? And then you'll be able to see clearly to cast the speck or moat out of thy brother's eye. In the very context, he suggests you can help correct errors in others once you get those errors corrected in yourself. And so this is a clear misuse of Matthew 7, verse 1 the way people want to use it today. In that very same context, and of course this, all those quotes are from the famous Sermon on the Mount, and in that same sermon, just a few paragraphs later, at verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Oh, wait a minute. That's judging, isn't it? Doesn't that suggest that you'll be able to make a judgment based upon what you see? in these other people, these false teachers, these false prophets. In fact, Jesus actually commanded us to make judgment. In John 7, verse 24, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And so judgments are necessary. What about the church then being too judgmental? I'd, I'd like to agree that a balance is necessary. Certainly we need to be pointing out error and sin, condemning evil and wickedness. But we also need to be doing what this verse says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And so, yes, there's a balance here. We, we don't want to suggest that we should just exclusively be condemning and judge, uh, expressing judge, judgment from the Word of God. Of course, that's the, when we express judgment, it has to be from the Word of God. But we ought to extend words of comfort and consolation and help and encouragement. Uh, certainly, the truth is designed to bring about that sort of comfort. And there are plenty of, of, of scriptures that would suggest that, like this one from 1 Thessalonians 5. So what we're striving for, then, is a balance. Some sermons will encourage us, while others will convict us, and we need both of those things. Go back to the very first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. What was the result of that first gospel sermon? It says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That first gospel sermon was not a feel-good sermon. It was a sermon that convicted them of their sins and demanded their repentance. And so when someone says, I'm just looking for a church that's not so judgmental, again, they're looking for something that is not like what God describes 
in His inspired Word. I'm looking for a church that doesn't have so many rules, you know. I just don't want a lot of rules. Think for a minute with me. Can you imagine living in a place where there are no rules? You don't want to go there. You don't want to live there for sure. Uh, the word would be anarchy. If there are no rules, it's anarchy. And I'll tell you, that's a scary proposition. If you, if you think about, you know, sometimes we, we hear people who are describing potential future doomsday kind of scenarios if things go bad in our culture and our, and our, and our society collapses and the anarchy that would result. I'm going to tell you, that is a, that is a nightmare scenario to live in a place with no rules. You don't want to live there. We need rules. Society needs rules. I want to tell you, when it comes to religion, we need rules too. We can't have a meaningful, relevant religion without rules to follow. We need rules. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon says it's really what man's life is all about. Man's life is about fearing God and keeping His commandments. That's what it's about. That's what we're here for. That's what we're supposed to do. You cannot be ignoring commands and rules and at the same time be fulfilling God's plan for your life. But of course, what's beautiful about that is that all the rules that God establishes for us are in our best interest. He's like a loving parent who tells his child, don't run out in the street. Why? Because running out in the street is bad for you, right? He's like a loving parent who says, eat your vegetables. Why? Because eating your vegetables is good for you. That's what a loving parent does. God is our loving Heavenly Father, and He has made His rules and His commands for our well-being. And so we should be gladly submissive to the rules that He sets forth. A lot of times men see rules and love as contradictory to each other, that you can't love someone and still have rules for them to obey. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true in, the, in our physical lives. It's certainly not true with God. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said, This is how you show your love, is by keeping commandments. That's so very clear. In James chapter 1, beginning verse 22, it says, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. That's a memory verse, by the way. <laughs> Reminds you of that last verse. James 1.25 is one of our memory verses. But you get the point. How do you measure yourself? Well, you look into the Word of God. Now, he says, don't look into it like a man who looks. He says, like a man who looks in a glass or a mirror. And then he turns and goes away and forgets what he saw. In other words, I look in the mirror, and my hair's all sticking in different directions, and i got a big smudge of dirt on my face. And I look in the mirror, and I see that, but I just turn and walk away and forget about it. But what good did it do me to look into it? Why, why even look at the mirror if you're not going to straighten your hair, if you're not going to wash the dirt off your face? Why would you even look in the mirror? And James is saying... That's just how foolish it is to look into the Word of God, to see the rules and instructions that God has given us there, and then turn away and not be obedient to it. How are you going to be blessed? You've got to do the work. You've got to be obedient. In Matthew, uh, 
some people say, oh, well, I, I, I'll tell you what I think. I think that's a real pharisaical approach. You talk about rule-keeping, and that's what the Pharisees did. And if you're going to talk about rules, I'm going to charge you with being a Pharisee. You're a Pharisee if you're going to talk about rules in religion, because the Pharisees had all these rules, and Jesus condemned them for it. Well, what about that? You know, again, that's kind of unique that people know to throw out that Pharisee charge. The people who throw that out a lot of times don't know anything else about them, but they know it's a bad thing to be a Pharisee. Well, what about the Pharisees? Now, is that the worst possible thing? Well, yes, the Pharisees had a lot of problems in Matthew 23 that we're going to read here in a minute. A whole chapter, Jesus, in, a, in that whole Matthew 23, Jesus condemns the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Uh, but the problem is when people throw that term around today, I don't think they know what they're talking about. The Pharisees did have an issue with setting up their own rules. They had, they had a system of rules that they themselves constructed, and Jesus condemned them for that. But you know what? Jesus did not condemn them for demanding compliance with God's rules. Jesus never condemned the Pharisees for saying, God's rule says this, you've got to do this. He never condemned them. Now, he condemned them for setting up their own system of rules, but in regards to the rules of God's word, Jesus never condemned them. Look at this, Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Get the picture of what Jesus is describing there. Under the law of Moses, you were expected to give a tithe or a tenth of your harvest. Now, if you had a whole truckload of grain, you gave tenth of it. But the Pharisees were so meticulous in this that even when they raised their garden herbs, and you know, a whole year's crop of, of garden herbs might be just a handful. Not a truckload, a handful. But when they got their handful of mint and anise and cumin, they would carefully divide that in ten parts and give a tenth to the Lord. Some would say, oh, that's just ridiculous. That's just ridiculous to, to be that stringent to try and observe the rules that carefully. That's just foolishness. Did Jesus condemn them for tithing their garden herbs, mint, anise, and cumin? No. No. What he condemned them for was omitting the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. But notice, these ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. He said, I'm not telling you to stop tithing your garden herbs. You keep on doing that. But you make sure that you, that you include these weightier matters in the law too. Judgment, mercy, and faith. In 1 John chapter 2, beginning verse 3, Hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. You get the gist of that? John is saying that rules provide the only way to know that we're right with God. The rules are there so that we know whether we're right with Him. And in fact, you couldn't know any other way. You couldn't be sure you were right with God unless you learned His rules and you kept them in your life. Finally, someone says, I'm looking for a church that's not so old-fashioned. You ever heard someone say that? Ah, oh, that church is it's just old-fashioned. That poll that I was citing earlier about people leaving the church, one-third of people who leave the church say the reason they do because they find it boring. It's boring. They leave the church because it's boring. Well, what about that? 
You know, people, people kind of make this argument. You know, we've advanced. Uh, now we've got cell phones. We sure don't want to go back to old wired rotary dial phones. I wouldn't want to go back to having to have... The only place you can call on a phone is when you got one hooked to a wire, you know. And we're out on the road, we have to search for a payphone so we can stop making... Oh, no, I don't want to go back to that. We live in a modern age. We've advanced past that. we got computers now, computers and smartphones and so forth. I sure don't want to have to go back to a typewriter. You know, I don't want to have to use an old typewriter. We've, we've advanced. We've come a long way from that. And, you know, it might be fun to ride a horse on Saturday as a form of recreation, but I sure don't want to go back to having to ride horses when I've got my modern automobile and I can ride in a car instead of a horse-drawn carriage. I don't want to go back to that. We've advanced far past that. And some people look at church that way. You know, they say, oh, we've come a long way. Uh, you know, and, and when you go to church, man, it's old-fashioned. It's just like stepping back in time. Why would I want to read from a book that my grandmother read from? And why would I want to worship in a way that's been around for 2,000 years? That's just old-fashioned. What about that? What do you think about that? I actually think that's the wrong view of the religion of our Lord. You know, there are some things that never become old or out of, out of use. They're not practical for modern-day application. For instance, what about drinking pure water? That's been around for a long time. People have been drinking water for a long time. Would you say, I don't want to drink water anymore? People have been drinking water since time immemorial, and I don't want to be just drinking water anymore. I don't like water. I don't want to drink water. No, water is necessary. People have been eating healthful food forever. I don't want to eat healthful food anymore, you know. Uh, there's actually a movement now to go back to the old way, isn't there? To stop eating so much processed food and go back to the pure foods. There are stores, that's, uh, that's all they do is sell that sort of thing. And, and people are flocking to that because, why? Well, they have discovered that something old is good. The old way is good, right? So, when, we, when people say the church is old-fashioned, I think they're approaching it wrong. Yes, it's ancient. It's been around for centuries. It's been around for 2,000 years. The true church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has been around for 2,000 years. But that doesn't make it bad because it's old. In fact, it makes it good, right? Excuse me, here we got something popped up. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 8, Paul said, Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promised the life that now is and the life which is to come. And that's still true. It always has been true and continues to be true. Godliness is profitable in this life and in the life to come. Jesus said that when we pursue the, the true religion of our, of our Lord, that we are actually laying up treasures that will never pass away. In Matthew 6, beginning verse 19, lay, up, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. Everything we see in this physical world will ultimately pass away, but serving God in His way is enduring, and in fact it will endure through all eternity. And so what about this idea? I'm looking for a church that does this or that. Well, first of all, understand, I think it's a wrong concept that I should be able to shop for a church and pick out things that I like and don't like. The idea that the church is too dogmatic. No, the Scriptures tell us to be dogmatic. 
uh, looking for a church that's not judgmental. No, we have to make righteous judgments. What about no rules? If you think about it, you really don't want to be where there are no rules, and certainly not in religion. What about old-fashioned? Old-fashioned doesn't mean bad. In this, in this instance, it's one of those cases where old is good. What about the church? What are you looking for in the church? What we seriously should be looking for is a church like is described in the pages of our New Testament. That's the ideal. That's what we ought to be seeking. A church that's teaching and practicing the things that are found in the Word of God. That should be our desire. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to end the lesson with a song of invitation. As we sing this song, we'll be asking everybody to consider your relationship with God. Make sure it's right. If you're not a Christian yet, you need to obey that simple gospel plan of salvation. It's real old. This plan of salvation has been taught for 2,000 years, but it's still the right one. Hear the truth. Leave it. Repent of your sins. Confess your faith in Jesus. Be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're a Christian already, but you've slipped away, you need to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If in any of those ways we can help you, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Supper, we'll sing number 182. 182. I believe in Mount Calvary. 182.
182. There are things as we travel this earth-shifting sand that transcend all the reason of man. But the thing that matters the most in this world they can never be held in our hand. I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I believe whatever the cost. And when time has surrendered, and earth is no more. I'll still cling to that old rugged cross. I believe that the Christ who was slain on that cross has the power to change life today. For he changed me completely, a new life is mine. That is why by the cross I will stay. I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I'll believe whatever the cost, and when time has surrendered, and earth is no more, I'll still cling to that old rugged cross. I believe that this life with its great mystery Surely someday will come to an end. But faith will conquer the darkness and death, and will lead me at last to my friend. I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I'll believe whatever the cause. And when time has surrendered and earth is no more, I'll still cling to that old rugged cross. As Jesus was on the cross, um, he made a few statements, uh, one of which was, uh, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's a, a quote from the 22nd Psalm, 
You know, it seems to me that maybe this was a way of Jesus giving us a glimpse.